Our sermon meditation this morning is Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we read this passage, we marvel of all that you have accomplished in history, of all that you're doing in the present day, and we also think about all that you will accomplish in the future. We hold to the promise of what you will do in the coming days. Though we do not see you, you are indeed at work in the world, so we glorify your name for the ordinary and yet supernatural work you're accomplishing through your people in your church. Lord, during these next few moments, take this ordinary exercise that we have the habit of doing each week, reading and expositing your word, and we ask that you would supernaturally apply it to our hearts by your spirit. Conform our minds, enliven our hearts, even bend our wills so that Jesus Christ might be magnified. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Last month marked the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision, which um, overturned Roe v. Wade. You may remember that on the Sunday closest to that anniversary, during the prayers of the church, Elder Capone, he offered up what I thought was a, a magnificent, a tremendous prayer of thanksgiving for that momentous achievement. We should truly thank God for what he's accomplished. He also prayed that the Lord would continue to overturn state laws that permit abortions, even warring against those who promote that industry. But in his prayer, he also asked that the Lord would grant repentance to those who are destroying life. And we also asked that the Lord would grant us compassion for those who are promoting that which is evil. Then also just this past week, Pastor Jeffrey posted his recent interview with Delana Brooks of the Pregnancy Health or Help Care Center um, on the All Saints podcast. If you haven't had an opportunity to listen to that recording, I want to commend it to you. It was very encouraging to me. I think you will be encouraged by the stories that Delana shared with you, with us, about women who have 
had conversions, if you will. They have chosen life over death for their babies. Of course, she, along with us, she celebrated the Dobbs decision and the fact that abortion is now illegal in the great state of Texas. But it was also a reminder that there's still much overturning to take place, both in the minds and hearts of people as well as in the political realm at the state and federal level. I wonder how many of us envisioned that Roe v. Wade would be overturned in our lifetime. How many of us can envision abortion being abolished altogether in our land? Can you envision that? What do you envision is possible, is, is realistic? Because if you're like me, you probably struggle to maintain hope in comprehensive Christian transformation of culture because we just look around, we see our society has become so degraded, we've become so wicked. Is God really in the business of overturning the status quo? Do you believe in a God who is intent on turning the world upside down and using his people to do that? I think we should. I think we should because God turned Nineveh upside down. Now let's be honest, what we read, it's not ordinary, is it? It's probably the single greatest example in all of Scripture of an entire city, a nation, repenting and turning to the Lord. It's amazing. It's truly remarkable. I guess it maybe happened with Babylon as well, right? Somewhat in Persia, but nothing like this. And it shows us the magnificent power of God. But I think it also contains encouragement to us regarding some simple, some very ordinary for lack of a better term, ingredients for transformational change that God calls his people to engage in. Now look, obviously this passage emphasizes the sovereign grace of God in salvation. Salvation always belongs to the Lord. The Lord will have mercy on whom he has mercy. However, I think this text also addresses our agency in transforming culture. God is in the business of turning the world upside down And he calls us to participate in that process. Well, if that's the case, how would that look? How would God, um, what would God have us do to see the world change? This this morning, I want to show you just three transformational actions that I think God calls us to pursue. Very simple actions. First, he calls us to engage great cities. Jonah was called to a great city, right? Look at verses 1 through 3 again with me. Jonah's given a second chance here to make good on on God's original commission to go to Nineveh. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. God called Jonah to engage a great city, and I think God calls us to engage the great cities of our time. What made Nineveh so great? Well, first of all, it was just really big. Bible scholars do uh, have disagreements on uh, how that that phrase, three days journey in breadth, should be interpreted. Personally, I don't think it, it meant that it would have taken Jonah three days just to walk from one end of the city through to the other end. I think it signifies that it would, would have taken Jonah three days to traverse the city 
to walk all along its streets and proclaiming the message that God gave him to proclaim. But in any case, the city was massive. It was massive by ancient standards, about three square miles, about the area of nearby Ridgely Hills. Now, I know that doesn't sound great to us, but uh, for an ancient city, that's huge. Remember that Nineveh was probably the most populated city in the world at the time. We know that there would have been anywhere from 120,000 people, right at the end of the book, it talks about 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, but that may be a reference to children, so it could be anywhere from 500,000 up. And as I mentioned a few weeks back, it would have been a cultural and civic center full of palaces and parks and plazas. As I mentioned, they, they had their own zoo and botanical garden. Great cities have always been cultural, cosmopolitan centers, and Nineveh was no exception. You know, Nineveh may have been cruel, and it may have been even barbaric. But you know, there's a, um, there's a term, a, a misnomer really, that I think we should not label them, and that's pagan. And I'm guilty of using that, own, uh, that term with Nineveh and countless other cities of antiquity, but I don't think it's really an appropriate label because pagan means rural. Pagan means of the countryside or provincial, and, and Nineveh was anything but provincial. It was cosmopolitan. It was a great city that would have been recognized as tremendously influential on the world scene. You know, I believe, I'm convinced that God has a heart for great cities. Obviously, cities are the cosmopolitan centers that are going to influence culture for better or for worse. You know how to predict where the culture is going? You look to, L you look to L.A., right? Sorry. <laughs> look to New York. Look to Chicago. You, you could look to the fourth largest metropolitan area in the, in the country. Anybody know what that might be? That's right. We're living in it. We may not like it, but quiet little Mayberry is probably not going to turn the world upside down. Listen, I, I do understand why people want to move to the suburbs. I get why people might want to retire in the countryside. My parents retired in the countryside. I'm not going to condemn anybody for retiring in the countryside, right? I love the country. But I'm very thankful that God has a heart to transform the city. He has a vision for that. You know, despite any of his shortcomings, and I'll admit this, you know, he's passed away. It, it becomes easier to uh, say something really nice, sad thing, that's true, but it becomes easier to say something nice about someone when they passed away. But I really do, I mean this sincerely, I admire Tim Keller for his work. God used that man powerfully. You know, Tim Keller went to Manhattan in 1989 to plant a PCA church, and 30 years later, there are over 5,000 people worshiping at one of the Redeemer venues in the Upper East Side, West Side, and Manhattan districts. Not only that, but Redeemer, they've been used to plant over 100 smaller citywide churches. Think about that. And of course, along the way, Keller gained an audience that far surpassed his pulpit. Now, again, I don't agree with all of Keller's positions, especially his, his idea of social justice. I wish he would have been more outspoken about some other issues that are facing our culture. But I think it's worth noting that New Yorkers consider him to be a conservative Christian, both theologically as well as even politically. 
In any case, Keller helped reach a city for Christ. Who knows what his legacy might prove to be over time. In fact, uh, he may have assisted in reaching many cities for Christ. What I mean to say is that it's impossible to determine his influence in the PCA as it pertains to church planting in metropolitan areas. You know, when the PCA was formed in 1973, and I know a little something about the PCA having come over from them to you, but when they formed in 1973 by splitting from the mainline, uh, more liberal Presbyterian denomination, they had just 260 churches and just about 41,000 members. They were also a very provincial denomination that was located predominantly in the rural South. This year, the PCA celebrated its 50th anniversary with nearly 2,000 churches, and they're approaching 400,000 members. From 41,000 to almost 400,000 is an increase of almost 1,000% in just 50 years. That's younger than me. While they're still kind of a southern denomination, they can be found in cities throughout the the Northwest, the Midwest, the, the Northeast, the Southwest, they're all over the country, and they're in cities. And it seems to me that the CREC is primed to enjoy that same kind of growth, if not more. That's why I'm super excited that we're exploring, right, a church plant in Granbury. I know that Granbury, it might not be a, a, a magnificent metropolis, right? Probably is approaching the size of Nineveh in terms of population, but it's connected to a huge metropolis, DFW. And I hope that in 10 or 20 years' time, we're going to see a dozen thriving CREC churches in the fastest growing metro area in the country. That's what some people say DFW is. By God's grace and provision, that is entirely possible. I hope you believe that it is. How do we turn the world upside down? Well, first we engage the great cities. But then also we must proclaim God's word faithfully. Look at verse 4 again. As Jonah heads into the city, he calls out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now here's a question for you. Was Jonah faithful in proclaiming the message that God gave him to proclaim? Because in verse 2, the Lord had said, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So was this the message that God told him to proclaim? Well, on the one hand, it would be somewhat shocking if it is, right? I mean, this is probably the worst evangelistic sermon you've ever heard. There's no mention of grace. There's no mention of even the possibility of redemption. There's not even a mention of God here. <laughs> All he says is 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. But then, on the other hand, let's take notice from verse 2 that God did say to Jonah that he should call out against Nineveh. Which might lead us to believe that Jonah was indeed faithful in his proclamation. Not only that, but also notice that Jonah says that Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, that word overthrown can more accurately be translated overturned, literally turned upside down. It's the same term that's used of Sodom and Gomorrah, so it is a fitting word to convey judgment. But there seems to be a double meaning here, almost a play on words, because Nineveh did get turned over, didn't it? 
Verse 10 says that they turned from their evil ways, so God likewise turned from his fierce anger. The king said, who knows whether God will turn, right? Everything is getting turned around in this situation. You know, as an aside, Christians sometimes make a big deal of the fact that that God who does not change, he changed his mind here. Is that really a conundrum for us? I want to say to you, no, not at all. Here's why. This is precisely what he said he would do in Jeremiah concerning any nation. In Jeremiah 18, God says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. Sounds like turning it over, right? And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. So God's not changing. He's actually keeping keeping true to his promises. In any case, by using Jonah as his mouthpiece to announce that he was going to overturn Nineveh, God was hinting at something that he was going to do. Moreover, another hint of mercy is embedded in the text. It's the fact that he gave them 40 days. Jonah says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned. Throughout scripture, 40 days is is a time of testing. Remember that Moses was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and during that time, the people failed the test. They, they lost faith. They lost patience. They said, we don't know what's happened of our leader. And so they made a golden calf to lead them on their way. Then also the, the spies, remember they spent 40 days scoping out the promised land. And upon their return, Israel failed. They failed to believe God's promises. And they were then required to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And then finally, in the New Testament, we see Jesus, the consummate Israelite being tested in the wilderness for how long? 40 days. So 40 days, that's a time of testing. Nineveh was being tested to see if they would repent. And hallelujah, they did. Nineveh proved to be faithful where Israel proved to be faithless. Nineveh believed God, which is why he relented. So God actually did have a message of hope for Nineveh. It was just embedded in there. I'm going to overturn you. You have 40 days. Now, I'm sure Jonah hoped that they would perish. Remember, he was comfortable ministering in his kind of cushy corner, wasn't he? God had given him a sweet assignment. Though his nation was just as undeserving, Jonah was called to bear a a message of prosperity to them. We're going to make Israel great again. But then God took him away from that assignment and told him to go to Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was evil. Nineveh was very wicked. They deserved to die and go to hell, which is exactly what Jonah wanted to see happen. Jonah wanted to see Nineveh overturned, yeah, but like Sodom and Gomorrah. But I think he had a premonition that God was turning them in another direction, which is why he turned coat and headed for Tarshish. But regardless of how he felt, Jonah's job was to be faithful in proclamation. Likewise, our job, our job isn't to wait until we get to the point where we feel a certain way about a certain kind of people before we're willing to honor the Lord with his calling upon us. Yes, God wants us to feel compassion for the lost. If he's been merciful to us, he wants us to extend Mercy to others, but let's not let our feelings dictate our faithfulness. 
Our job, our calling as God's people is to be faithful in proclaiming God's word. So then turning the world upside down, that entails engaging the great cities and proclaiming God's word faithfully, but then also it involves encouraging societal transformation. Encouraging societal transformation. And societal transformation usually has two parts to it. First of all, it's personal. But then also, it's political. Which comes first? Which might take priority, we might ask? Well, look with me at verse 5. What does it say? The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. You know, ordinarily, I would say that change takes place at the grassroots level first. Probably the most significant story that Delana Brooks uh, shared with us on that podcast that she had with Pastor Jeffrey was the fact that one of our own uh, All Saints members, one of the women of our church who was volunteering at their pregnancy help center, counseled a woman who was contemplating an abortion, and that woman chose to give birth But after she gave birth, she named her daughter after that woman in our church. I don't know who that is. I don't know if Pastor Jeffrey found out. Uh, I doubt he's going to let you know. I don't know who that is. Your Heavenly Father knows who that is. You know, I think Delana shared that story with us because she knows we all struggle from time to time wondering whether we're making an impact. And we frankly, we need to be reminded that being faithful in small things, bearing the word of counsel in a crisis to a neighbor in the humblest of circumstances, that that can really make a difference in the world. That act of faithfulness that may have only, you know, changed one person's life. Actually, strike that, right? It changed two people's lives. But that kind of faithfulness when practiced comprehensively as a church, I think it can change the world. I know we want to see comprehensive transformation of culture. We want to see society repent. We want to see a revival, reformation. We probably need a little of both. We long to see an extraordinary event like the repentance of Nineveh in our own land. But if we want to see societal transformation, how's that going to happen? By voting? You know, a few years back, I read a book by a man named James Davison Hunter. It's entitled To Change the World. Pretty ordinary title, but actually the subtitle is even better. It's called the, the, To Change the World, The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. I highly commend it to you. It's a very provocative book that will challenge your assumptions on how the world has changed. In one place, Hunter presents this so-called irony regarding our political responsibility. He says, Christians are urged to vote and become involved in politics as an expression of their civic duty and public responsibility. And this is a credible argument and good advice up to a point. Yet in our day, given the size of the state and the expectations that people place on it to solve so many problems, politics can also be a way of saying, in effect, that the problems should be solved by others besides ourselves and by institutions other than the church. It is, after all, much easier to vote for a politician who champions child welfare than to adopt a baby born in poverty. 
to vote for a referendum that would expand health care benefits for seniors than to care for an elderly and infirmed parent, or to rally for racial harmony than get to know your neighbor, someone of a different race. True responsibility invariably costs. And here he sums up the irony that he's pointing out. He says, political participation then can and often does amount to an avoidance of responsibility. Hmm. I believe that societal change begins at the level of personal repentance and personal responsibility. If we want to change the world, then obviously we have to be willing to change ourselves, to be changed. And yet, here's another irony that Hunter points out. He says, the deepest and most enduring forms of cultural change nearly always occur from the top down. In other words, the work of world-making and world-changing are by and large the work of elites. Even, he says, even where the impetus for change draws from popular agitation, it does not gain traction until it's embraced and propagated by elites who have lopsided access to the means of cultural production because they operate in well-developed networks and powerful institutions. You know, I think Hunter's right. How does change take place? Well, really it's both and, right? It's not either or, it's both and. Societal transformation is both bottom up, some would call that inside out, as well as top-down. And I think we saw that in our passage. Verse 6 says that the word, of the, king, uh, the word reached the king of Nineveh. The word reached the king of Nineveh. Well, that sounds kind of bottom-up, doesn't it? But then notice just how comprehensive the changes become once news reaches the king. Let neither man nor beast, herd or flock. Well, that's pretty comprehensive. We're going to involve the beasts, right? taste anything. Let them all fast from food and drink. Let man, and again beast, be covered in sackcloth. And everyone, get on your knees and let's pray. Let's pray for God's mercy. The king ordered that. Of course, none of those edicts took place until the king himself had experienced his own personal transformation. He got up off the, the, the throne. He took off his royal robes. Maybe that was symbolic of him recognizing who the true king on the throne was. He covered himself in itchy sackcloth and he sat in ashes. And that was a sign of, him, of his mortality. I'm no god. I'm a man. I'm made of dust and to dust I will return. You know, we need to be praying for the humbling and even the conversion of our governing authorities. I, I truly believe that God could change the world through righteous rulers. What would be possible if the kings of the earth stopped raging and bowed the knee to King Jesus? You know, it's happened before. I mean, it's, yeah, obviously it's happened before, but I don't mean that. I mean, it's happened before in history. It can happen again. Do you want that? Do we want that? You know, most Christians I've known, and I know I've come from a little bit of a different tradition than yours, but most Christians that I've known have a very low view of Constantine. 
They doubt his conversion, and they don't think that Christendom was very good for the church. I find that fascinating. Maybe that says something. Maybe that shows us something about what we want or don't want, as the case may be. Look, I, I have no reason to disbelieve Constantine's conversion. Yeah, okay, apparently he saw a vision, right, in this, how did it go, in this sign you will conquer? I don't think that's ordinarily the way God saves people, but he, he wasn't an ordinary person, was he? He was the emperor of Rome who Christianized the civilized world. But let's consider, just for the sake of argument, let's consider the proof of his conversion. Constantine liberated the church from persecution through his Edict of Milan. Everybody knows that, right? But he also outlawed idolatry. He ended pagan sacrifices. He put an end to the bloodthirsty gladiator spectacles. He called the Council of Nicaea to combat heresy and to establish orthodoxy versus heterodoxy. He forbade married men from having concubines, right? Sexual legislation for all of his society. He passed legislation that protected the well-being of divorced women. He decreed the death penalty for rapists. He exempted the church and clergy from taxes. He closed the courts on the Lord's Day, and on and on it goes. Most of his legislation we don't even know about. These weren't politically expedient moves, by the way. He accomplished this while the church was the minority. At the time of his conversion and ascending to the throne, only about 10, maybe 15% of the Roman Empire was Christian. And look at what he accomplished. You know, sometimes the church shies away from getting too political. The gospel is political because King Jesus is on the throne. We need to be encouraging societal transformation, yes, personally, but also politically. You know, I asked this at the beginning of this message if we thought it was possible to see Roe v. Wade overturned. It's not a stretch, not a stretch to think that God might grant repentance and abolish abortion altogether. Nineveh repented of the violence that was in their hands, and we can too. God is in the business of turning the world upside down. He invites us to participate in this call by engaging the great cities, by proclaiming his word faithfully, and by encouraging comprehensive societal transformation. May he strengthen our, our hands for those tasks. Let's pray together. Lord, we know we see what you call us to do, and so we ask that you would give us grace and fortitude and courage, resolve, kindness, love, and compassion to engage the world and to encourage the transformation that you want to see. We ask that this transformation would begin with us in the church. Help us to put away sin and to strive after Christ. We also ask that you would hasten the day of having the kings of this earth bow their knee to Jesus. Lord, grant our governing authorities humility and repentance. In particular, Father, I pray that you would rid our land of the violence of abortion. 
Protect the unborn, Lord. May the church stand with clarity on this issue as we seek that kind of change. Hear our prayer, Lord, for we pray it in the one who has overcome. Amen.